0: Manufacturing dissent since 1996 This is hell Despite 10 meetings of the House Select Committee Investigating the events of January 6th, 2021 When a mob forced their way into the U.S. Capitol Building And into the halls of Congress As well as in the offices of elected officials Looting As they eventually made their way onto the Senate floor And come to think of it, during all that coverage I don't remember the term looting ever being used It's as if that term is reserved for people who do not look like the January 6th crowd People who in a time of crisis are doing what is necessary in order to survive When. You know, that's when it comes to people of color, when they're taking things like getting food and water from stores that have been closed due to whatever crisis locals are facing. Somehow, victims of disasters are looters, but those who steal from the United States Capitol, not out of necessity but out of sheer arrogance, are are not in the eyes of not only the media but the January 6th hearings themselves. They're not the people who are guilty of, well, seemingly. The crime of looting And that's what is missing from these hearings The discussion of race and how racism Fueled the hatred on display that day The inequality In the way that the media uses Race when they report on events Despite President Trump's Years of race baiting which date to long before he ever ran for president Racism was apparently Not an issue to the January 6th committee But it seemed like a major issue To the people who were involved in January 6th it's just weird that the commission didn't really discuss the role of racism And what it played in the rise of the far right and its flirtation with fascism In a few minutes we'll do something the hearings refused to do And that is consider how racism influenced the attacks on the Capitol building When we speak with political science scholar Clarence Lusane, Who posted the Tom Dispatch articles The votes that weren't cast, racial justice, voting rights and authoritarianism and prelude to authoritarianism The magnification of America Clarence is a political science professor and interim political science department chair At Howard University An independent expert to the European Commission Against Racism and t- Intolerance His latest book is $20 and Change Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight For Racial Justice and Democracy You can follow Clarence on Twitter at C. Lusane, that's L-U-S-A-N-E-I-M, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Anything new with you? How was your weekend, Lindsay?
1: You always ask that question I and I just blank out. <laughs> until
0: until I ask you, until, until the moment I ask you, that's probably the first time you thought of what you did last weekend. Oh!
1: Yeah, I was avoiding the Super Bowl (laughs) yesterday. I don't have TV, so it's not that hard to do that. Um, Saturday? Oh, I went to um, uh, Bryn Mawr Warming for the first time on Saturday. What's that? Um, Well, I suppose just a group of uh, organizers have been setting up some kind of food sharing um, event and just, I guess... uh, Free stuff sharing event um, every Saturday in the winters here in Chicago off of Bryn Mawr and Winthrop.
0: Oh, really? Just so, outside?
1: Yeah, just outside. It was uh, like they used to get heat, bring like propane heaters and stuff. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if they've had the capacity to do that this year, but it wasn't super cold on Saturday. It's been pretty warm the last few days here.
0: That's so. very cool. That's very cool. I'd like to go check that out. That sounds very cool. It's There's so many awesome things going on in the neighborhood that you know more about than I do.
1: Yeah, that, well, my friends have been involved with that a long time, and that was the first time I ever went. So, <laughs> uh,
0: Like needing a vacation after you, you went on vacation, I need a weekend after the weekend I just had. We decided to be super efficient, my girlfriend and I, which means... I worked the whole time, and following our conversation last week with Sheila Liming on her book, Hanging Out, The Radical Act of Killing Time, and the discussion about the line between work and life blurring since the advent of the smartphone 30 years ago, to the point that work becomes life and life becomes worse, and it even getting worse under the pandemic, my weekend got all blurry, and I'd really like to have that weekend back. More important than any of that, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is if you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be?
0: You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can email Chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com. Dot com And clicking on support Brave enough to be streaming live Dumb enough to be goofy Stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover This is hell And Lindsay has this week's hangover cure
1: This week's hangover cure is The favorite Japanese hangover cure At least according to an article with that headline at nippin.com The article The article states Kaku Yasu, a major Japanese liquor retailer, conducted a survey of subscribers for its email magazine to find out the best meals to ease a hangover and foods that people crave.
0: For their email magazine. Interesting.
1: (laughs) Of the respondents, 92.6% had experienced a hangover at some point in their life, of whom 76.3% have a preferred meal for the day after a late night out. The favorite hangover meal mentioned by 61.5% of those surveyed was a bowl of miso soup. This traditional dish, particularly miso soup with clams, was popular for various reasons, according to the respondents. One commented, It seems to speed up my recovery, while another said, I heard that the ingredient ornithine contained in the soup has health benefits. The next most popular choices among those suffering from hangover included light meals that can easily be washed down with water, such as udon or soba noodles, other kinds of soup, or green tea over rice. Have you ever
0: just poured green tea over rice?
1: I've never heard of that until I just read that. I know, that's really crazy. (laughs) I kind of want to try it now. It sounds kind of good. Right. On the other hand, heartier options were also popular, such as ramen or curry with rice. One reason curry was popular is that the spices stimulate blood flow and perspiration, and turmeric helps to break down alcohol. That makes this week's hangover cure, miso with clams.
0: Although it sounds like it's actually... Curry is <laughs> the actual cure there but whatever And now a word from our sponsor And as we are completely Listener supported We are not paid by any of our affiliate Stations, we do not accept any commercial Funding, we do not accept any corporate Or foundation grants, and we are definitely Not a not-for-profit, because Well, we can't afford to be a not-for-profit So help us help everyone Who works on the show by supporting This Is Hell So the entire staff can Make a living wage, I mean everybody But me, because considering the number of Hours I put in the show, if I made a living Wage, (laughs) this show would go Broke more than it already is Sometimes we get email that I've swear, I just can't tell if it's spam or not Is it just a mass mailing To every media outlet Or is it an actual listener who Actually wants to be on the show Knows about our show, listens on a regular basis And wants to be a guest on the show And I'm not certain what this one is We got a message via Facebook So that implies that it's at least somebody who follows us on Facebook And it says, hey there, my name is Sam Shane Author of Education Revolution, Media Literacy for Political Awareness I'd love to come on the show and discuss my recent book if you'd have me Now it's possible he is a listener As he is a former journalist and wrote for the Kennebec Journal in Kennebec, Maine And we have a lot of listeners in Maine for whatever reason at the publisher's website, they offer this synopsis of Sam's book, A Plea for Public Education Nationwide to Teach Media Literacy, and specifically from the left of the political spectrum. And he has a quote of endorsement from a past guest on our show, Ben Burgess. So how can we find out if we are actually being spammed or if this is a listener who is legit and wants to be on the show? Well, here's how. Sam... If you hear me reading your message on the show, contact us and we'll talk about having you on the show. Otherwise, I think this might just be spam. We also got something that I'm pretty certain is spam, but they keep emailing me over and over. So maybe, again, maybe not. I don't know. Jack if that is their name, writes, hello, which is always a red flag for spam because who starts an email with hello? So Jack, if that is their name, writes, I see your website, thisishell.com, and it's very impressive. I wonder if advertising options like guest posts and content are available on your site. What's the price if we want to advertise on your site? Note, the article must not have any mark as sponsored or as an advertisement. Cheers, Jack. Which sounds pretty spammy to me, especially when Anyone who has ever listened to this show knows we do not have any commercial sponsors, nor do we want any. And I was certain it was spam until Jack emailed me again, this time writing, hello. <laughs> it's got to be spam, right? I just wanted to follow up on your website, This is hell.com regarding advertising options like guest posts and content. Could you please let me know how we can proceed along with price? Article must not have any mark... As sponsored or an advertisement Cheers, Jack Alright, I'm not ab- 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 not absolutely certain Not 100% certain that this is spam But I do know Jack wants to pay us To post an article But then not have any kind of notification to the reader That it is in fact a paid advertisement So not only does he want to advertise with us When we don't have any advertisers He doesn't want us to tell people <laughs> It is a paid ad, which makes me wonder how many websites are running articles that are really paid ads but not telling their readers. And if they are, shouldn't that be against the law? Spam or not, Jack seems like a pretty sleazy character, and we want nothing to do with Jack. If that is their name, you can email us, message us via Fbook, DM us via Twitter, and if you do, and you're not a bot... Like Jack maybe We'll likely read Whatever you write To us on air Coming up on the show The racist truth About the January, about January 6th That the House hearings Refused to consider We'll tell you What happened On our most recent Patreon podcast Former producer Sebastian Vuper Who has a PhD in history Will be giving us A peek into The past inside the present As he provides us With the historical context From the past To have a better understanding Of our present And we'll tell you What's happening The rest of this week here On This Is Hell Another end of the world is possible This Is hell And another end of the United States is possible And that end is the usurpation of Democracy through changing the law In order to keep people of color From voting Which despite not being mentioned during the January 6th hearings Was a big part of the violence On that fateful day Here to help us have a better understanding Of the role racism played in the attack On the U.S. Capitol building Political science scholar Clarence Lusane posted the Tom Dispatch articles, the votes that weren't cast and prelude to authoritarianism. His latest book is Twenty Dollars and Change, Harriet Tubman and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice and Democracy. You can follow Clarence on Twitter at C. Welcome to This is Hell, Clarence. Thank you for having me. It's great having you on the show. This is really fantastic writing. You write that the fundamental right to vote has been a core value of black politics since the colonial era, and so has the effort to suppress that vote. right. Up to the present moment. In fact, the history of the suppression of black voters is a first rate horror story that as yet shows no signs of ending. But what you call voter suppression, the right insists, is their fight against voter fraud. Of course, those efforts lead to voters losing their right to vote unfairly. Is there a middle road? Is there middle ground when it comes to this issue? Or can suggestions of voter sim- voter fraud simply not be tolerated? Is giving any ground to the voter fraud crowd, let's say creating a voter ID that uh, verifies eligibility, uh, is any making any kind of concession to the voter fraud crowd a mistake?
2: Uh, yes, a total mistake. And let me point out that, the call by African-Americans for voting rights is inclusive. And it's never been simply, let's just have voting rights for African-Americans. So it actually benefits white Americans to actually have full and complete voting rights. But in fact, what we have is a system that's completely different than virtually every other democracy in the world. And by that, I'm talking about states' rights. So in most countries there are national election policies and laws and everybody operates under the same rules. In the US it very much depends on what state you're in. Some states it's easy to vote by mail, others is more difficult. Some states have early voting, some states do not. Some states make it easy to register to vote, others make it more difficult. So you can have very different rights even if you live two miles across the border from the state next to you. Now, what underscores all of that is that historically, this has been very racialized. And for African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, their access to voting has been circumscribed uh, up until the 20th century. And it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act uh nineteen sixty-five and some early laws that passed, uh, that you begin to get a more of a level playing field. But again, as I point out in the article, that has always been resisted. And what we've seen, particularly in the last 20 to 30 years, has been a significant counter assault that has again pushed to limit not just voting rights in general, but specifically uh, voting rights that affect those communities. You
0: are obviously very concerned about the rise of white supremacy over the last few decades uh, and throughout the entire history of the United States, but the resurgence of it in the last few decades. But doesn't the outcome of the 2022 midterms suggest that maybe, just maybe, far-right extremism and white supremacy are losing their ability to some degree to attract voters to the Republican Party? Because... Following the State of the Union address, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave the Republican rebuttal, and it was about nothing but the far-right culture wars you hear on Fox News Channel and by reactionary radio hosts. Many analysts have said that same culture war focus. That's why the Republicans did not do as well in the midterms as many pollsters expected. Does the outcome of the midterms to any degree suggest to you that far-right extremism and white supremacy and the culture wars that fuel it may be losing their political potency in the United States, as many critics are currently arguing?
2: So I think when you do a deep dive into 2022, then you get mixed messages. So certainly at one level, there were uh, there was a tremendous defeat of Trump back Backed and far right backed uh, candidates, uh, particularly at the federal level for Senate races, uh, some House races, and then in a number of states, uh, candidates lost at the Secretary of State level and at the governor's level. And so those, I think, came about uh, in part because there was major organizing and push by the other side. At the same time though, if you look in some regions like in the South, um, parts of the Southwest, there were actually gains that were made at the state level in the local level, uh, not only by the Republican Party, but the far right wing of the Republican Party. And what we're seeing is that uh, people are voting uh, and being successful uh, against uh for democracy, uh not because of these voting laws, but in spite of them even though they've passed uh, uh, more restrictions on people's ability to vote, who have come out and basically uh, got around those re- restrictions. People have been willing to stand in line longer. They've been willing to travel farther to go and register the vote. As a result of that, what we're seeing are uh, voter suppression laws that now don't have to do with just voting, but with the administration of voting. That even if people overcome those obstacles, there is a, a backstop where you will have officials who would simply decide they're going to throw out certain votes or they're going to uh, game the system in a way uh, that benefits uh, the Republicans, regardless of what the vote was. Uh, and you had mentioned earlier uh, what I read about uh, white supremacy. Uh, In the the article I published, uh, it was actually adequate because there were uh, some uh, areas that I could not even mention because the article would have been 85,000 words. Uh, But for example, in the 2022 election, one group that was very active, particularly in Georgia and a number of places, was America First Legal, uh, which I didn't mention in the article. This is the group that was started started by Stephen Miller, who was uh, Trump's main um, person uh, around uh, immigration, and uh, America First Legal put ads out uh, in those areas and uh, other places around the country that basically focused on how white people are being denied the right to vote, being denied COVID. Uh, vaccines uh, and that they are being treated in the most racist way possible in the country. So it is not a thought whistle by any stretch. This is a full blaring trumpet of calling to the tendencies of white supremacy in the country because Miller and the entire Trump crowd have basically determined they're not going to win black votes, they're not going to win Latino votes. They're not going to win Native American votes in any significant numbers. So, their best option for uh, electoral power is to mobilize white supremacy. So,
0: you mentioned that in your writing, you point out that uh, it shouldn't be forgotten that the insurrection of January 6th, 2021, at the Capitol in Washington was also an assault on minority voters how was January 6th an assault on minority voters? And to what extent has the public been informed that that is the case? Did January, did the hearings, for instance, did it ever come up in the uh, January 6th house select hearings that race played a role in the January 6th, 2021 assault on the Capitol?
2: So there were multiple ways in which uh, that dynamic uh, expressed itself. So in the Hearings themselves, uh, the topic did come up. And we saw it, for example, when there were uh, witnesses who had testified how they came under attack by the Stop the Steel movement. You had the Georgia uh, uh, campaign workers, or I'm sorry, poll workers uh, who were name-checked by Donald Trump, and their life became total hell. Uh, because the Trump mega crowd uh, decided to attack these two individuals and went to their homes, send hate mail, threats the entire spectrum of terrorism uh, were brought against uh, these uh, African-American women. Uh, but they testified that they were doing their jobs, and Trump decided that he would uh, name them because he knew that that would fire up uh, his crowd, and that was part of the larger strategy of going after areas in the 2022 election, in the 22 in the 2020 election uh, that voted overwhelmingly against Trump uh, in between states. So in Michigan, it was Detroit; in Georgia, it was Atlanta; in uh, Wisconsin uh, was Milwaukee, uh, so a state in in, in Philadelphia, uh, in Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, and so those uh, states were targeted, but specifically black areas in those states or areas where there were black voters uh, were targeted, and so this wasn't accidental. This was an intentional part of the strategy of mobilizing and inciting whites in America who are believing in the great replacement theory, that the changing demographics of the country means that uh, whites are going to lose. Uh, They're going to lose financially, they're going to lose culturally, uh, they're going to lose politically. So that's the text under which uh, Trump pushed this uh, dynamic. And then what happened on January 6th, was the overwhelmingly white crowd. The crowd was you know, 90, 95% white. Uh when it attacked the Capitol, part of that was specifically the way in which it saw black police officers, uh black people who were working in the Capitol, uh all all reported uh being called the N-word uh and having other kind of abuse. And again, that's consistent with what the stop the steal and what the approach of the Trump administration and Trump himself have been uh kind of all along. So the January 6th committee had a lot that it could have uh into the report that not only did it uh what Trump did, but the context and the overall drive. Uh, my sense is that. There was a reluctance to do that, primarily coming from Liz Cheney, uh, who may have saw that as distracting from going after Trump. But I think it's also because there's a hesitancy to say that it's not just the Trump body, it's Trump leadership, it's not just the Republican leadership, but that there's a base in this country Disproportionately tied to the Republican Party now that embraces white supremacy and will continue to do so.
0: So, what does that say to you about our current conversation? on race, our current public political conversation on race, when race cannot be discussed in a hearing where clearly racists, an investigation, where clearly racists were were involved. What does that say about our current conversation, about the limits to that current conversation, when we can't bring up race because we're afraid of, that it's politically radioactive?
2: Well, I think it says something about the, the political leadership in the country. Uh, that has attempted to uh, avoid that very difficult but necessary uh, discussion. But we see it hasn't been avoided by law enforcement. The uh, FBI has said clearly that the principal threat to domestic terrorism is white nationalism and these white supremacist movements, and we've seen that uh, manifest itself in uh, mass killings, uh, in the way in which uh, Black political and um, political leaders of color are are under threat. Uh, so It's a discussion that's going on and political leaders need to uh, be a part of that uh, because it's not going to fade away and it's not just based on as I think some Democrats argue that because of uh, people are in rural areas, people are working class, people are poor, they're looking for someone to blame. Uh, I think it goes well beyond that. And there's a cultural and ideological history in the country that has not been broken. This is why in 2023, we're still dealing with the Confederacy and Confederate statues, Confederate monuments, buildings that are named after Confederate leaders uh, still exist in 2023 because the country never fully resolved what the Civil War was about, and therefore it should not be embraced in any way, shape, or form. You can't imagine in Germany, buildings being named after Himmler or If you're in Cambodia, you're going to name some school after Pol Pot. Uh, It simply means you do not embrace these efforts that try to destroy your country. Do you
0: think that is the goal of the far right, is the goal of the so-called anti-critical race theory crowd, that they want to leave the civil war unresolved?
2: I think there's a political goal and the means in part to that goal is how you shape the narrative about history and how the country has evolved, who's been important in the country, who has not been important, whose uh, culture and politics matter. And so the attacks on this history really about the politics of today and so it's pretty clear that if there is a genuine understanding of what has been the history in this country of African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, women, LGBTQ communities, that it requires some remedies policy-wise to address the legacy of all of that history. But if you erase that history and you project a mythology that everybody is treated equal, has been equal, then it doesn't require you to do anything. I think that's what's really uh, driving uh, the far right uh, in many ways is finding the means by which it can uh, create the narratives that benefit what they're trying to do at this point.
0: You also point out that for years, Republican lawmakers at the state level had proposed. And where possible, implemented voter suppression laws and policies whose impacts were sharply felt in communities of color nationwide. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, at least 19 states passed 34 laws restricting access to voting laws invariably generated by Republican legislators. These included bills to limit early voting, restrict voting by mail and even deny the provision of water to voters waiting for hours in long lines, something almost universally experienced in black and poor communities. Communities. So are these desperate moves by a political party and a political movement that sees a bleak future due to a demographic shift in the United States? Because while some may think that's good news that there's a bleak future for conservatism, when things go like when the future doesn't look so great, often those who are desperate are very unpredictable and potentially dangerous. Is voter suppression a desperate act? And to what extent do you believe that da- that you know desperation can become
2: dangerous? Yes, I think it can become, uh, we've seen it become uh, very dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous uh, in a couple of ways. It's dangerous to democracy. Uh, we basically move increasingly towards a situation where people are no longer picking politicians, politicians are picking people. And that means that the trust of people simply vanishes. Uh, the the means by which people make their voices heard uh, and express their desires for what public policy should lead the country uh, tend to erode away. And so we should be very concerned uh, that that uh, has become the choice uh, for too many in the Republican Party. And there are the choices. Uh, the Republican Party can begin to address its policy agenda in ways that actually are favorable by uh, not just people of color, but by working people, uh, people in general. Uh, they decided that the path of, of choice is to limit the uh, way people vote uh and to take control of administrating uh elections where it becomes even more dangerous though is that the anti-democratic elements in your society and the author authoritarianism uh, that that will breed uh gets oxygen and there's a lot of data showing that when given the choice far-right voters, conservative voters will often say, if it's a choice between giving up some democratic rights and maintaining our policy agenda, they're willing to do the uh, latter, the the, um, former. And so that means that they're willing to suppress uh, people's democratic rights. And that could be uh, very violently uh, enacted. So there should be some concern. Uh, These elements aren't just going to fade away. Uh, They really have to be addressed uh, in the strongest legal terms uh, and make it clear that it is completely unacceptable uh, to uh, try to implement either legally or illegally uh, undemocratic uh, and autocratic uh, kinds of policies.
0: So you were mentioning that the Republican Party could choose to make policies, could choose to develop policies that were attractive to people of color instead of trying to suppress a vote in order to have political power. How much do you think the Republican Party, though, depends upon not developing policies attractive to people of color for whatever success that they have? Do you think that that is a major part of their success and and without that? if they were actually doing good making develop developing really good policies for people of color how much would that damage them
2: uh so so again i think uh part of that we just don't know uh because we haven't seen it but historically in the country the democratic party and republican parties uh have evolved and they've never been Uh, homogeneous. So what we saw with the early development of the Democratic Party, that it very quickly became the party of the South, the party in defense of slavery uh, and held that within the party in defense of white supremacy uh, and held that position uh, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, The Republican Party starts off as a party of Northern industrialists whose interests coincide with the elimination of slavery. And so it develops as a party, part of which is very much committed to an industrial business agenda, uh, and what all of that means, but also part of the party uh, that was very abolitionist uh, against slavery. Uh, And that we saw develop all the way until early parts of the 20th century. But then the Democratic Party began to change. Uh, The northern part began to be very different from the southern part. Uh, The Republican Party began to move away from what I would argue were some of its uh, uh, anti-racist, pro-inclusive agenda to a much more conservative one. And then we end up where we're at today. So these parties aren't uh, fully, uh consistent, and you know they have not been just one uh, in one frame throughout. Uh, so to me, it's not as much about the party as much as what particular policies are being advocated at the moment, and who do those part, who whose benefit uh, who benefits from those uh, policies. So the Republican Party could very much say, for example, on voting rights, we think it would be great that everybody in the country has an uh, equal and fair uh, and easy way to vote. Regardless of what state you're in, regardless of what party you're in, uh, everybody should have an easy way to vote. That is not a hard lift, but if your agenda is you do not want everybody voting because you know that will not uh, sustain the agenda that you're advocating, then you will not advocate for that. So that's where I think we're at.
0: We are speaking with political science scholar uh, Clarence Lusane, who posted the Tom Dispatch articles, the votes that weren't cast, racial justice, voting rights, and authoritarianism, and prelude to authoritarianism, the magification of America. You point out how Republican Wisconsin Elections Commissioner Robert Spindell, one of three GOP appointees on the six-person commission that oversees that state's elections, he openly bragged that the well thought out multifaceted plan that's in quotes he said the well thought out multifaceted plan of the Republicans had resulted in a dramatic drop in black voters in the 2022 midterm elections including in Milwaukee the state's largest city which is about 40% African American and you also point out that Republican state legislators in Texas alone filed 14 bills on January 10th including one that would raise penalties for illegal voting whether committed knowingly or Not more ominously, one Texas proposal would fund the creation of an election police force exclusively dedicated to catching those who violate voting or election laws. That unit would be similar to the draconian election police unit created in Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida, as part of what is functionally becoming a regime dedicated to a version of right wing terror. So are these police, is this all part of that multifaceted plan that Spindell, Commissioner Spindell was talking about to take over state Supreme Courts as they're trying to do in Wisconsin right now, to gerrymander as they are doing in Wisconsin right now, to create election police, suppress voting in communities of color, all backed by the legal system? Because if this is a legal system enforcing racial inequality, is this to any extent an apartheid system.
2: Oh, it certainly is. And I'm uh 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 unfortunately convinced uh that we will see a growth in what's going on in Florida. Uh we you know, political scientists talk about uh state trifectas. and by that uh we refer to states where the uh, state house, the state uh, senate, and the governor's office are all controlled by one party. Uh, What we have in uh, 2023, there are 22 states where there are trifectas, and all of those states are pushing uh, far-right policies, not just around elections, but around abortion, around immigration, around workers' rights, Uh, and so forth. And what we're seeing uh, uh, happen in Florida around, not just this sort of metaphorical policing, but the very real creation of a police force uh, that goes uh, after uh, voters. And what we saw in Florida was that it overwhelmingly targeted black voters. And uh, this is uh, extremism uh, that would seem manifest itself in Florida. Uh, it had been one of the states where uh, there was severe disenfranchisement for people who had been convicted of felonies. Uh, this had existed all over the country, but by the time you get to the '80s, '90s, and 2000s, uh, states had begun to reform and eliminate uh, those those laws. Uh, Florida was one of the last that did not. Uh, and uh, at one point uh, uh there was a ballot initiative that essentially eliminated uh felony disenfranchisement and allowed people who had committed uh unserved their time uh to be be able to vote. The Florida then Republican controlled uh, legislature uh who can override that decided that they would pass a law that made it uh, obligatory that people pay back uh, costs. They're like um, court costs um, and other costs uh, that prisoners, uh, former felons uh, had. But all of that was vague and murky and the state did not even have good records on what people uh, owed. And so they used that, however, to go after people um, and people who had, uh, uh, in some instances, voted unknowingly because they thought they had gotten their right back, and and in effect they had, uh, were targeted by DeSantis. Uh, And they lost a lot of those cases. But that's what we're looking at, is every mechanism possible uh, by these far-right forces And you can look to Texas, you can look to a number of states where it's very likely uh, we're going to see replicas of all of that because people are still voting, even in spite of these obstacles, in spite of waiting in line for six hours and can't get a drink of water, uh, people are still voting. And so there has to be other ways to go after and try to intimidate uh, people voting.
0: And as uh, you were uh, mentioning about the election police, you write that in uh, states like Alabama, Mississippi, and 20 others where the GOP controls both chambers of the state legislature and the governor's mansion, intimidating uh, voter tracking police squads could be the next play in an ongoing effort to undemocratically control elections. Such policing efforts would without question disproportionately target communities of color. So what do you think the impact would be on already strained race relations with police and and racialized policing? What impact do you think making an election police force will have on racial relations with police?
2: Uh, So it's going to be horrible. And uh, there's already uh, efforts to uh, push back. There are uh, state legislatures in all of these states who are Trying to uh, push policies that will move away from all of that. So uh, even though the overwhelming number of uh, policies that are bills that are being proposed are coming from uh, far right and conservative Republicans, uh, there are Democrats uh, who are proposing on the other side, and in some states where. Uh, Republicans have basically were voted out of power in 2022. Uh, in Michigan, for example, uh, there are already proposals to open up uh, more uh, ability for people to vote, uh, as well as to uh, address some of the other policy areas uh, that have been ignored by these uh, Republican-dominated uh, state legislatures. So there's, you know, some possibilities and some hope uh in areas where uh there have been some of these defeats. But I think the South is is going to remain a a major concern uh for a while because if you look at Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh Georgia, somewhat less of a degree, um, but some all those states, uh, there is there's a pretty um uh, harsh effort coming from uh, Republicans who control those state legislatures and those governorships.
0: So, in your opinion, uh, how sustainable is a political strategy uh, You know that the Republican Party may be embracing at this very moment, a uh, political strategy of manipulating the voting process as a uh, party platform and as a strategy to win elections? Is it self-destructive or can it, in the long
2: term, succeed? So, I think it will vary around the country, and part of it will be the degree to which there are repeated defeats, even in the areas where those strategies are being tried. Uh, I think as a clear repudiation that happened in 2022 with the most high profile of the Republican candidates for senator and for governor, uh that that gave some pause but right now if you look at the uh federal level and who controls the republican party uh, in congress if you look at the republican national committee if you look at some of the state governors from DeSantis to Abbott to Nome to others uh it is a hard road for Uh, just regular conservatives, uh, and particularly anti-MAGA conservatives. Uh, And uh, what I think has evolved in the last couple of years is that MAGA has went beyond Trump. So even as there are people in the party who are basically uh, soured on Trump, do not think he can win, uh they are all in on the maga agenda and so how much of the uh infighting and disruption that will occur in the 2024 uh election will shape to what degree i think the republicans continue down uh the path uh it's not totally clear that trump will win uh, the nomination, uh, and it's certainly more than likely if he did, he would lose the election. And so, for the long-term thinkers in the Republican Party, meaning the donors, some of the uh, media advisors, uh, uh, those who have a, a uh, an agenda to win, then uh, they will be rethinking, you know, how far to go. Uh, down the Trump road uh, and all of that could be very uh, disruptive for the Republicans
0: You write that much of the dynamic of voter suppression is the result of the failure of congressional Democrats to carry two voting rights bills across the finish line. Black activists are all too aware that the Democrats blew the opportunity to pass such legislation during the last two years when they controlled both chambers of Congress, even if by the slimmest of margins in the Senate. But why would Democrats not move forward on voting rights bills that could benefit them. That would likely help their vote totals on election day. What would, to you, what explains this? What would seem like the Democratic Party shooting itself in the foot?
2: I think the party overall wanted to pass these. It certainly, you know, it passed, you know, relatively easy on the House side, uh, and then in the Senate side with Manchin and Cinema, probably most prominently, but probably at least one or two other Democrats. Uh, they were hesitant uh, because on the Senate side, in those states where there are close elections, and essentially the Democrats need a lot of independence uh, and probably a few disaffected Republicans, uh, it put a a hesitation on their uh, doing that work. And and I think that Biden did not give it the kind of uh, priority, vocalizing uh, that his office has, that would have made it more um, likely uh, that these bills would have passed. And it's again not that clear why Biden would not have seen the uh, interest and value of pushing through these bills, uh, because now there's almost no possibility uh, that they will get pushed through. Uh, either on the uh, Senate side, that the Republic that the Democrats control, but you still have resistance from uh, Mansion and Cinema, as well as uh, filibuster. And then on the Republican Republican control House side, it's just a non-starter. Uh, so there's an opportunity that uh, is gone, and what's actually likely to happen is the Supreme Court. Is going to put even more restrictions and more hits on uh, voting rights uh, coming out of this term. So it's going to be more of an uphill battle uh, than even two years ago um, uh, by the time we get to the uh, end of this spring.
0: And a big part of your writing is also about your concerns over rising authoritarianism in the United States, especially within the far right white supremacists and the Republican party. And you cite the international Institute for democracy and uh, electoral assistance that argued the United quote, the United States, the bastion of global democracy fell victim to authoritarian tendencies itself and was knocked down a significant number of steps on the democratic scale during the 2020 election do you think the public here in the United States recognizes these authoritarian tendencies, and do they relative to the rest of the world? Does the rest of the world recognize that the United States is slipping towards authoritarianism more so than even here here in the United States we may recognize?
2: So I do think the rest of the world is looking and is raising these issues I spend a significant amount of time working in and with and in international uh, waters. And one question that I'm consistently asked is how far is the country going to go down that road? Because many places around the world have seen fascism and autocratic governments. And so they know the signs, they recognize when the tendencies start to emerge and they saw this with the Trump election and what uh, came out of the uh, Trump uh, administration in terms of policies that it advocated, the government it decided to be befriend, befriend around the world uh Trump's own uh, behavior uh, and then the behavior of the Republican Party. So there is a sense globally that they, uh, the road down, down authoritarianism in the U.S. Uh, it seems to be uh, moving faster and faster. Uh, in the country, there is more uh, confusion about the issue that many conservatives, uh, some uh, genuinely believe that some of the policies they're pushing are necessary, uh, even though they recognize that they're undemocratic. Uh, I think that others believe that the only way they maintain some power uh, is through these undemocratic uh, means, and they're willing to support elected officials who parrot and uh, uh, argue for these, uh, these other ways to go. So we should be concerned, and... I argue that there already is a history of authoritarianism in the country. When we look at what happened after Reconstruction uh, and the political shape of the South from essentially the 17, I mean the 1880s uh, all the way up to the 1960s, it was authoritarianism for black people. There was a different set of laws, different set of policy, different sets of rights that were not only carried out by the state, but had massive popular support among whites. So the experience in this country, I think is already there. And we should be really, really, really concerned uh, with the folks who say they wanna make America great again, which is basically push it back to before the 1960s, uh, some people want to push it back before the 1860s, uh, but that's you know what we're facing right now.
0: One last question for you, Clarence. We have been speaking with Clarence Lusane, who posted the Tom Dispatch articles, the votes that weren't cast and prelude to authoritarianism. You can follow Clarence on Twitter at C. Lusane, that's L-U-S-A-N-E. His latest book is $20 and Change. Harriet Tubman and the ongoing fight for racial justice and democracy. One last question for you, Clarence, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is... The question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write how the opposition to authoritarianism here in the United States is, you use the word, anemic. Why is the opposition anemic? If the threat of authoritarianism is so great, why is the opposition anemic? I
2: think the impulse fight uh, authoritarianism is strong. I think the awareness what strategies might be most effective are weak. And the lack of willingness to mobilize those who would be best in the position to resist uh, has not occurred. And unfortunately, I think the Biden administration, has too long held on to this notion that there are forces in the Republican Party that can be negotiated with on some of the items that he's proposed. Uh, Those forces may exist, but they're marginalized and they're tiny and they have no impact. And so it means uh, being in a, uh, uh, being prepared to be committed for the total war uh with these forces who really will uh impose uh some of the worst policies uh that the country has ever seen
0: clarence thank you so much for being on our show i really enjoyed your writing thank you. dispatch and i look forward to having you back on the show in the future now that i have your email address so it was the biggest mistake you ever made was give me your email address
2: okay thank you very much i really enjoyed the conversation
0: all right thank you clarence staring into the abyss so you don't have to this is hell If what you just heard from clarence on the role racism plays within the republican party politics and policies and what it played on january 6th despite the commission never discussing it if you that made you realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a Subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell. And you're going to want to. uh, I haven't talked to Lindsay about this yet, but you're going to want to tune into this week's uh, Patreon podcast because there's a chance there's a chance that I'm going to be interviewed. During the Patreon podcast When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon You get a discount on all of our merchandise Plus you get access to over 350 Past Patreon podcasts Last week on Patreon and available right now At patreon.com slash hell For subscribers The sheer amount of denialism we must engage in To survive under capitalism And within the United States is absolutely staggering If you stop to think about it Which I know I don't Because the more we do stop to think about All that denialism we must endure The most- more maddening it is. We must deny U.S. history. We must deny its impact on our society. We must deny any shortcoming of capitalism. We must deny the dangers posed by our actual living environment. We must deny that we ingest and whatever is what we have, must deny what we ingest and whatever is in the food and we eat and the water we drink. Hell, even what's in the air we breathe. We must be in constant denial in order to function. And if we refuse that denialism, we are labeled as unpatriotic or un-American. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with being labeled unpatriotic or un-American In a country that insists we have a religious faith in its exceptional and innocent nature That is nothing more than a sack of lies And on last week's Patreon podcast we played an interview from December 2006 with media critic Neil DeMoss Who had just posted the Fairness and Accuracy in reporting articles The smell of success after 10 years of welfare reform, ignoring the human impact And Katrina's vanishing victims media forget the rediscovered poor at the time nobody was criticizing president clinton's welfare reform which had devastating effects on the country's poor that policy was getting bipartisan support as it still does today and as the establishment media does when something gets bipartisan support they ignore it it's like the immense amount of funding of the military both parties support it so it goes unquestioned by the mainstream press if both parties agree on something according to the media it's above criticism But this is not the media, this is hell So we give ac- access to guests whose opinions actually challenge the status quo And the oligopoly of par- power that two major parties impose upon all of us with the help of their friends in the media As for Neil's writing on the after effect of Hurricane Katrina Which made landfall in New Orleans a couple of years earlier He p- points out how the media sympathy for the poor who were left behind to drown had suddenly evaporated just like their interest in the number of people who died unlike daily reports of exaggerated numbers that included wildly high overestimates of those who died on 9-11 and every day the estimate being reporting you know, that was being reported was decreasing on a daily basis when it came to Katrina the media started by reporting there were no reported deaths and slowly those numbers increased Every day, it makes you wonder, why did the press start with exaggerated numbers when it came to 9-11, but with Katrina, they immediately underestimated the number killed? It's almost as if they were exaggerating the threat posed by terrorists while playing down the threat of extreme weather during climate change. But the only way you can hear me talk about the denialism we are surrounded by every day and hear a 2006 discussion on the media's horrible coverage of welfare reform and Hurricane Katrina is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and please tell us how our listeners are responding so
1: far. This week's question from hell is... If you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be?
0: Do you have any answers for this?
1: I do. I mean, I think clearly the answer is the CIA, the CIA or the FBI or whoever, but specifically, I've had really bad paranoia lately about like people doing twin studies <laughs> and like I'm like the research out there is really bad about twins and I feel like that just can't be I mean, I, last night I was up late reading about what, um, how the Nazis invented twin studies um, and all that involved, so I figure there probably are still creepy weirdos do, like, who think about that kind of stuff. Man, but. I,
0: still, <laughs> I still want you to do a podcast on twins. I still want you to do Some
1: Someday, as soon as I can process it myself. <laughs>
0: okay, how are our listeners are responding so far?
1: Uh, let's see. We have... Um, On Patreon? That's what we're doing now. If you could spy on anyone or anything in the United States, who or what would it be? Eric says, the NSA. Let them see how it feels.
0: (laughs) It totally makes (laughs) sense. Exactly.
1: Jeff Dorshan says, the gods and Santa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am curious about what is Santa up to? (laughs) He probably has a massive surveillance system.
1: The, it, or is Santa a God is my question for <laughs> uh, Andrew M says what would he spy on uh, New York State's Cannabis Advisory Board <laughs> wants to catch them shaking hands with John Boehner
0: okay <laughs> Former Senate
1: Leader. All right. Uh, Peter J says I would have to be watching the Detectives. Oh, Jesus. Is that a TV show? Oh, no, it's, it's a caps. song.
0: It's a Elvis Costello song. Oh.
1: <laughs> 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 watching the Detectives. Okay. Uh, Neil C. Says I'd spy on myself and laugh at all the dumb things I do. <laughs> you can just like look at your own social media account.
0: <laughs> that is where all your dumb things yeah. are. They're all cataloged and neatly organized for
2: you.
1: Mm-hmm. And last on Patreon, thanks to all our Patreon members here, uh, Braden. Says, I'm gonna catch those bastards making crop circles. Can I say that on the radio? <laughs> yeah, sure know. you can.
0: Sure, bastards, sure. Bastards, bastards. That's
1: bastards, just bastards. a person with unmarried parents. <laughs>
0: well, there's nothing wrong with being a bastard. It's fine. Uh, so uh, those are our, all of our Responses on Patreon We'll get to the ones From Facebook and Twitter And if more of our Patreon patrons Post their responses On Patreon We'll be reading those As well uh, We give our Patreon patrons Now first crack At the question from hell We announce it At the end of Our Patreon podcast So tune in For the entire interview And then you can hear The Patreon uh, The question from hell On our Patreon podcast And you can see it Every week in our At our uh, site Patreon.com Slash this is hell If you are a subscriber and again the person with our favorite answer to the question from hell wins any piece of merch that they want but you we have to have your answer in just remember before the end of this week's show we're announcing the winner after jeff dorchin the moment of truth we'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week speaking of the past it's time for our weekly segment the past inside the present with dr sebastian vopper who has a phd in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian.
1: Uh, Sebastian was in my Zoom chat a minute ago, but now I don't see him here. Hmm. So
0: Let me read something and see if you can me, uh, situate okay, the just, situation yeah. over there. Situate the situation. One more thing I wanted to mention, though. I'm not sure if you watched the big military-industrial complex celebration of brain injuries or not, but they ran two ads that really confused me. The first was a long-winded ad with a superstar athlete uh, talking about teamwork and seemingly pumping up a team before a big game. But in the end, it was an ad for Cognac, And I don't know what teamwork you need to drink cognac. In fact, I would argue drinking alcohol is not a team sport. Although others may encourage you to drink, you do not need teammates to actually drink. The other ad that I could not figure out for the life of me was an ad for, well, I have no idea. They just kept saying, spend like a billionaire. They were in this ad a few times, spend like a billionaire. And I have no idea what that means. So I I looked up the advertiser online and could not find anything. So I searched for the tagline, spend like a billionaire, and again, nothing. All I can imagine is they were advertising runaway rampant economic growth and the idea of people going deep into debt. None of it made any freaking sense to me whatsoever. Do we have Sebastian yet?
1: No, he said he needed to reboot his Zoom. (laughs) Uh... Zoomed in not see any audio devices so...
0: Well, why don't we, while we're waiting for that, why don't you tell us who is going to be on the show the rest of this week?
1: Tomorrow, we are going to have award-winning freelance writer Boyce Upholt, who wrote the New Republic article The frightening cost of cheap eggs
0: it that's a creepy creepy article because we should not have this easy access and this low of cost of eggs and there's a reason why and it's not something that's good
1: yes the rest of the title is why paying more for eggs can save us from another pandemic
0: go figure right yes (laughs) and uh who's our uh, last guest this week
1: uh we have elizabeth samet author of looking for the good war American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. Elizabeth is a professor of English at West Point.
0: And because she is, I have to read a disclaimer during the interview, during the intro, during the interview, every time I reintroduce her, that the opinions that she is sharing with us are only her opinions and not those of West Point. Thank God, <laughs> but you know, it's let's just let's
1: get West Point on the show. <laughs>
0: exactly. So uh, I guess that's a good thing. I guess that's yes. a very good thing. I would imagine. And he I'm knew surprised
1: from... they let her have her own opinions.
0: To be honest, <laughs> to be honest, that's a good point. I know I was really surprised that the person who wrote that book about how the American pursuit of happiness causes violence and looks that and leads to war. I mean, I was kind of surprised that that person was from West Point. And so when she said, "Well, you're going to have to read the statement." I was like well that makes sense because otherwise you wouldn't have a job anymore so do we have sebastian yet yes the past inside the
3: present hello it is still february in america and uh that means it is still black history month get in don't get comfy uh This won't be pretty. This is part two of a four-part series on black history, and today I will be talking about the failure of reconstruction. As I said last week, my approach to Black History Month is strongly informed by my being German, and that means that I do not highlight African-American achievement, and I do not talk about how things have always gotten better for black people in this country. Other people do that, and that is generally a fine thing to do. I, however, am a German historian who is very aware of my own country's very dark pasts. And I also firmly believe that this country needs to reckon with its respective own very dark, dark pasts even if there is a lot of kicking and screaming and dragging by the hair involved. I'm making this sound kinky. Uh, Because even in Germany, where we do an overall decent job of educating the population about the collective sins of the past, people still harbor certain misconceptions, and to some degree that is understandable, because nobody enjoys facing, uh, facing their pasts or misdeeds or the misdeeds of their ancestors. It's just not a very fun thing to do, but that shouldn't be at all an excuse. For so many reasons. Uh, because unless a nation is collectively in agreement about having screwed up in the past, there can be no real reckoning with that past. Not really, you know, like it gets hard to do better in the present. And that wound then will always be open. So uh, let's dig in, shall we? So after the Civil War ended, and after the dust had settled, after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated and buried, the country was still deeply divided. Only now the defeated South was under military occupation, with Union soldiers being down there to ensure that nobody got any strange ideas about rising up again, or denying the freedmen and women and everyone in between their newly granted constitutional rights. But, of course, things weren't quite that simple, because keeping troops stationed in the South was not a politically popular thing to do. And then there's also the fact that Lincoln had picked Andrew Johnson as his running mate, And uh, yeah, as basically as a compromise to mollify the border states who were still in the union, um, Johnson was a southerner. And now that Lincoln had been assassinated, his vice president became the new president. And as a southerner, he was not very much interested in keeping the South down after the war. And how far this went is well illustrated by the fact that as president, he frequently opposed congressional legislation that was aimed at forcing southern states to comply with things like the 13th and 14th amendments. Congress repeatedly passed laws that required overriding Johnson's presidential veto. And for the most part, things looked pretty good for the freed people in spite of that. Um... Even And even though horrific violence was still boiling under the southern surface, in the years immediately following the Civil War, many places in the former Confederacy elected so-called Reconstruction governments, which meant black people voted in politicians who represented their interests for the first time. In some parts of the South, that meant that for the first time in history, black people elected black political representatives. And these Reconstruction governments, however, had to by and large be protected by military force because, well, while they were democratically, more democratically than local governments before and after, they were a constant thorn in the side of the white ruling class in the South. And as time went on, they became less and less tenable. So. Why did then Reconstruction ultimately fail? So Reconstruction, the process by which the Southern states were supposed to be rebuilt and remodeled and then readmitted to the Union, ultimately failed because of several reasons. I mean, that's a real duh thing to say, because there is never really any single thing in history that happens for only one singular reason, because truth evades simplicity. That's just not how things work. so a key problem uh, in in the failure of Reconstruction was that Ulysses S. Grant, who succeeded Andrew Johnson in the presidency, was also not a great president, even though he had generally better intentions than his successor, uh, than his predecessor. My bad. Uh, But the political realities were setting in. Grant's administration was ridden with corruption scandals that eroded his authority. And then to make things worse, an economic crisis struck in the early 1870s. And as is the case so often uh, today still, the voters blamed the sitting president for the misfortunes that now befell them. And this resulted in the Democrats making huge gains in the 1872 midterm elections. And I don't have to remind people that this is not the modern democrats this is before the southern strategy of the republicans so this is yeah i don't know just people people get weird about this um Anyway, so that, the Democrats gain, making huge gains, combined with the general Northern wariness of having to keep financing the expensive military occupation of the South, paved the way for Reconstruction's eventual failure. What proved the final nail in the coffin was then the contested presidential election of 1876, where because of shenanigans and irregularities, the election results just remained unclear for months and months and months. Uh, basically, a new civil war was sort of like looming because, you know, it, it like one side cried that the election was stolen the other side was like well but what about this here and that here and then after months of deliberations, Republican candidate Rutherford B. Hayes agreed to compromise, which included ending the military occupation of the South and effectively ending Reconstruction. And this in combination with the Great Railroad Strike in the summer of 1877 were then the final things that ended the attempt to make the South play nice. Not that they had been playing nice before or accepted defeat or accepted that black people were the equal of white people by law, but when the soldiers that had been present in the South went were pulled pulled out to enforce the rule. Uh, to to well, were pulled out to then uh, defend the interests of railroad corporations. Uh, basically, the gloves came off. Southern whites had been looking for ways to main or to had been looking for ways to maintain the system of white supremacy that delegated black people to third class citizens. And The failure of Reconstruction meant that southern states now had essentially free reign to put black people back in their place. The most egregious system that in many ways reproduced the structures of slavery went through the legal and the carceral system. So it was not, you know, they were not breaking any laws because, well, they were making these laws. And also, stop me if this sounds familiar. So the 14th Amendment contains a clause that prohibits slavery in the United States, quote unquote, except as punishment for a crime. And white southerners now aggressively and with extreme violence purged southern governments of black people and largely enacted local laws that aim to disenfranchise the freed people. If black people tried voting, they would often be lynched, hung from a tree in public. Men often were castrated and their genitals stuffed in their mouths before hanging them because they had the audacity of trying to vote. And these actions were often condoned, if not joined in by local white law enforcement. And so southern legislatures found ways through the loophole of no involuntary servitude or enslavement except as punishment for a crime by essentially making being black a crime. In many ways, this is the beginning of the modern carceral state, which granted is a bit of an oversimplification, but then it's also not. Because southern Southern states enacted things such as vagrancy laws, which made it a crime to be unemployed or being idle in public. Local law enforcement was then allowed to interpret these laws as they saw fit. And that funneled many, many black people into prisons where they were again forced to work for free. Southern prisons then began engaging in a process that became known as convict leasing. Prisoners were leased for a fee to local industries. Often people who had been enslaved before the war were then leased out to the plantations they had worked on. And in many instances, convict leasing ended up arguably, and please be aware that arguably really does a lot of heavy, heavy lifting here, arguably worse than slavery. White landowners, planters, and mining magnates who leased out black convict labor often simply ended up working their leased labor to death. The local legislature didn't mind, uh, local law enforcement didn't mind, and if a bunch of le- leased workers died, well, they could always just lease out more people to replace them since the legislation guaranteed there would be no, no shortage. At least slave owners before the war had had some sort of sense of ownership over their human property, as atrocious as that is, as a concept. But and losing a slave was lost money, a lost investment. And that was already brutal, cruel and utterly dehumanizing uh, calculation to make. And then after slavery ended, the southern elites simply found new ways of continuing to you know, do that. But this time without any personal investment, and uh, essentially keeping black people on as a forced labor force only this time through less obvious and less direct means. But, of course, Black people were still, at least nominally, free. They were no longer people who had no rights whatsoever, so things were not throughout worse than slavery, only in some, still crucial, aspects. The South now became aggressively segregated through a set of legislative measures that collectively are known as the Jim Crow laws. On the national level, these laws could stay on the book due to the widespread disenfranchisement of black people in the South. Southern states were represented in Congress based on their overall population. However, large parts of that population were effectively barred from voting. And this became especially visible then in the 18, 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson decision by the Supreme Court, which stated that segregated public institutions were not unconstitutional or infringing on the rights of black people. And throughout these times, the crass prejudices and insulting tropes about black people that originated in white readings of slave resistance still played big roles. Free blacks were seen as untrustworthy, as lazy, but also as childlike and in need of white guidance and supervision and not capable of self-governance. And above all, black men were widely seen as only wanting to engage in miscegenation, in the mixing of races, in wanting to have sex with innocent White women. Uh, And this is basically where I will continue next week. I will talk about some more uh, about the Jim Crow era that followed and the ways in which black people at large try to navigate or escape from that. Yes, things will stay grim here because, well, this is hell after all.
0: This is not the media. This is hell. Sebastian, thank you very much for yet another excellent Past Inside the Present. Uh, but we're up against the clock, so uh, enjoy yep. the rest of your week, sir. All right. right, Will do. Thank you. Uh, coming up uh, on the show, Boyce Upholt will be talking about the frightening cost of cheap eggs. Elizabeth Samet will be discussing her book, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. We'll also have this week in Rotten History. We'll tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast. We'll have another moment of truth from jeff dorchin and we'll be reading the rest of your answers to this week's question from helen announcing this week's winner thanks to lindsey Gorey for producing today's show i'm your bitter blind broke cap radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz this is not the media this is hell
1: my demon is on my butt now uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.